for a few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite, we want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things, to be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. In this episode with Liz Ashley, we talk about the fun side of medicine and the challenges particularly for women of setting up in private practice. Um, so you mentioned that when you know, before 2015, it was in the NHS, it was fun. You know, you were in a, a nice boutique hospital and it was fun. And certainly for, for me, I think that's part of what's nice about private practice as well is that, yeah, the, the graft can be difficult and it's very difficult setting up as a business, but you've got a bit more control over your um, your practice and the way that you engage with patients and there's and you meet some really interesting people and so the, the fun is there as well is is your worry that um as things potentially move forward and private the private sector changes as you say to accommodate the nhs do you think that's going to squeeze the fun out of it as well yes yeah, certainly um I was actually, um, I've been doing some cases at the Cromwell and some actually little private cases. I mean, now I'm only allowed to do private practice after five o'clock. So this evening I've got to turn up at five o'clock to do one case after not doing very much for the rest of the day. And you can see the atmosphere is different. Um, all the, lots of the energy, you know, there's going to be much many more um, stand, standard operating procedures and protocols and, you know, actually, we're not so used to that in um, uh, private practice. We've all been allowed to do things sort of our way, as long as it's the safe way. Um, and I think that's going to be very much, things are going to be standardised and, you know, it's going to be much more managed like the NHS. And um, things like, you know, one of the good things about private practice is you only have to work with people you want to work with. I don't have to turn up for a surgeon that who's, you know, rude or not, very good in my opinion or you know and but I think that will change again and perhaps that there'll be more of an employed model in the private sector and they'll just employ you to go and do you know that Tuesday afternoons and it might be for Mr X or it might be for Mr Y and you'll have much less control and then I think that it'll become it'll be deprofessionalized and it become less interesting really um yeah I definitely do private practice because I meet 
people from all over the place and people from different teaching hospitals in London, you from Scotland. And that's been the great thing about it. And that's, and I've enjoyed it, but I really wouldn't, you know, get out of bed if on a Saturday morning, if I didn't enjoy it. And um, it's not, um, it's the primary reason I do it isn't actually the money. We haven't got children and um, we're both consultants. So I don't really need the money. I don't think people understand that with me. They People often say, why do you bother working so hard? But actually, I like the work. I really like doing anaesthetics. I like doing challenging and different anaesthetics, hard anaesthetics. I really like the patients. I think the the standards of nursing and the staff are often more constant and very good in the private hospitals. So, and I enjoy that sort of team atmosphere. Um, but I wouldn't definitely wouldn't do it if it was going to be more like the NHS. I wouldn't bother to work on a Saturday anymore, for instance. Um, and that's a shame, really. Um, and I think the, uh, you know, I think the the special the specialness of the private sector for the patients as well. It's not the the, the the doctor. I think that's one thing the government didn't understand at the beginning of COVID. They thought they would put the the um, uh, private team of doctors into running the Nightingale Hospital. They didn't actually realise that exactly they're the same people. <laughs> Uh, in the NHS and the private sector. So I don't think the surgery is any different. I don't think the anaesthetics is any different, but the sort of whole package is, you know, is, is more business class than economy, isn't it? And that's the whole point. You can actually um, give much more um, personalised care and give much more continuity in the NH in the um, private sector compared with the NHS. That all could be lost, which would be um, upsetting. Somebody was telling me that um, it took something like this in Canada to um, close down the private sector. And now there's, there's only one system in Canada. You can't choose to pay for your health care. You all have to have insurance and go through the same system, which is interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I don't sp- know about that. To me. I don't know about Canada, really. I'm, but somebody was saying that to me the other day. Yeah, they, they do have one system, which has... Um, you know, so for instance, if you're wanting an ankle replacement, the waiting time is is two years because there is only one system. There's not, they, there is some, uh, the doctors, I think, get paid in a different way from it just being a standard salary. I think uh, they get free for service, which I've always thought might incentivise some of my colleagues. But, um, you know, yeah. the, the people who like doing it, like me, would do all right on fees for service because that's how we work in private practice. But some of the others who like going to meetings, you know, um, and not doing much clinical work might find that a struggle. And actually, it might improve efficiency in the NHS, I've always thought that would be the case but I don't know whether that will happen yeah it was interesting one of my colleagues last week because we're similar Scotland has almost exactly the same model of having utilized the private sector and we've got our equivalent of the um, Nightingale Hospital which is um, called the Louisa Jordan whoever knew she existed but that's um, again a political motivation you can see that the politicians are now starting to take advantage of a situation it feels very much like um, the but yeah one of my colleagues who's going over to the Nuffield to do a, a clinic um, for urgent patients um, you know he was commenting to me and, and I said you know there are two sectors of patients that are on waiting lists now there's those in the NHS but there's also you know I've got a group of private patients that are waiting and he said, well, you know, they can just wait and, and you know, hell mend them. And I, my response to him was that 
there seems to be a, a real belief, certainly in Scotland, it's not quite as prevalent down down south, but that the pri- there's something bad about the private sector, and there's something bad about the and and something slightly dirty about the um, private sector, both for the patients that utilise it and the clinicians that work in it. That we're all just money grabbing and all the rest of it. And um, one that I explained to him that he probably doesn't realise how difficult it is to set up in private practice because it is a business. Um, but the second thing is that, you know, all of the the majority of patients, certainly that I see, are either small or medium sized business owners. Most of them are not people that come in laden with their, po- their, their pockets laden with gold. Um, and these are the people that are employing the other sector that has all been furloughed and now uh, at risk of losing their jobs. Whereas we in the in the NHS, we have jobs, we've got pensions, we're all fairly safe and secure. Um, you're. What's your impression of the of the people that the, and the patients that utilise the private sector? Is it a service that the NHS can um, mirror, or is it that it's something completely different? Um, I think the NHS could aspire to it, and actually, perhaps with some of the doctors working in private hospitals, they could see how different it is and how you can actually treat people pretty well, and they don't have to sit in some sort of. I mean, at UCH now, before you have a routine surgery, you don't get a bed and you have to get changed in the, basically in the ante room of the theatre complex and you sit in a, like a departure lounge at Heathrow before you have your surgery. And it's just dehumanising, to be honest. And um, I think they could see how it can be much more efficient in, in the NHS. And if you're feeling poor, poorly, you would like your own room and your own bathroom and all those sort of things. And that would be good to take to it. But I just don't think there's the capacity or the money to do that. And as you say, people that have private insurance aren't aren't the, the massively mega wealthy. They're people that are running businesses and need the, the um, ability to be able to choose when they have their surgeries. I mean, you, you see lots of people like having their surgery on particularly orthopaedic things and, 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 and more minor surgeries such as varicose veins on a Friday so they can recover over the weekend, have no time off and start back to work on a Monday because they're self-employed and self-employed people don't take sick leave, do they? Because they don't get paid for sick leave. So you can see that motivation um, and they just need a bit of convenience to fit, fit, fit between their travel and their, you know, their other work commit- commitments. And as you say, they're the people employing other people and keeping the presumably keeping the economy going. But even international patients, you know, um, the Arabic patients that we we quite often um, look after in in London, they're actually bringing um, revenue into the country. They're using the hotels, they're using the shops, they're going to Selfridges. You know, um, again, if we lost that international medical. Um, pay, those international medical patients, they're still it's still um, contributing to other industries in the in the West End of London. Um, you know, if, if if Granny needs a hip replacing, half the family will travel from Kuwait and spend money and eat, eat out to the restaurants. So the whole the whole um, industry, all these industries are interconnected, and I think people don't realise um, um, what contribution that all makes. And actually, the world closing down isn't what we want. And, you know, I know know it's been good and there's been no pollution and the air's been cleaner. But in the end, we don't want not to travel. And, and, you know, we can't go backwards. Society doesn't go backwards. It's a bit like, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the spinning jenny and the 
toll puddle martyrs, isn't it? We, we, we can't really go in that direction. And, you know, the plains are getting cleaner and greener and, and, and the, the benefits of air travel and, and, and um, you know, understanding different cultures and working abroad and has got to outweigh um, many of the other concerns. So I'm a little bit concerned about sort of the world closing back down and, and, and becoming less interconnected. Um, I'm actually hoping that things don't change too much. You know, I, I was actually, I had a good life before this. I, don't, I was quite happy to carry on as I was with my business and my private practice. And, you know, it could be, it could be quite, um, uh, it could be different and perhaps less good going forward, you know. And in a way, I think, I think there's something very odd going on with the private sector and there's, um, there's some people who may be quite jealous who are trying to control it. Um, and the other thing is, I do think that COVID, we have coped with COVID and we have now increased capacity and and it is really very important for medicine not to hold um the world to ransom and i you know i know people who are who've got who are CEOs of medium-sized companies and they're really worried about paying their employees and owners of companies and actually medicine can no longer hold people to ransom and they've got to encourage people to go back to work i think in a way the message has been too good you know stay at home and People have actually enjoyed staying at home and now we've got to say, go back to work else we're going to have nothing to pay for any health care. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's astonishing how, you know, for years trying to get anything to change in the NHS, I, I mean, you, you'll be exactly the same as me where you sit in a meeting that sits in a meeting that has a meeting about another meeting to decide that they're going to have a meeting in six weeks time about a meeting that you had six years ago. And, and that was one of the things that really drove me nuts about the NHS. Um, but it, it's a, what's really astonished me that, you know, in two weeks we can basically shut down the whole of the NHS, shut down the whole of the private sector, and that can happen in two weeks, and we can build hospitals in two weeks. Um, yet it, it, it appears that it's going to be a five-year recovery plan, and um, it's, you know, the waiting times are going to go up exponentially. There is definitely going to be some harm to patients as they have to wait longer for procedures and investigations. And, you know, you talk about the industri- the last industrial revolution, we're, we're right on the cusp or we're actually in the middle of the, the next revolution with, with technology such as this, um, which seems to be really difficult to get into the health sector. Where, where do you see... Or how do you see that technology could make um, things better for us moving forward? In the next episode, we explore how technology is helping anaesthetists. In a career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope, and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media, to decide what our collective future should be. You can follow Songbirds and Sirens via Facebook, Twitter or on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more, or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch.